Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello, and welcome to episode 46. Today's guest is Rajiv Malhotra, author of the new book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, Five Battlegrounds. Rajiv was a physicist and computer scientist specializing in AI in the 70s. After a successful corporate career in the US, he became an entrepreneur and founded and ran several IT companies in 20 countries. As the founder of his nonprofit Infinity Foundation, he has been researching civilizations and their engagement with technology from a historical, social sciences, and mind sciences perspective. He is also chairman of the Board of Governors of the Center for Index Studies at the University of Massachusetts and is a visiting professor at Jawaharlal Nehru University. His book speaks to the dangers of a neo-globalization imbalance that could be precipitated by inequitable use of and bias perpetuated by artificial intelligence. He analyzes the five key battlegrounds where AI plays a pivotal role. Economic development and jobs, power in the new world order, psychological control of desires and agency, metaphysics of the self and its ethics, and the battle for India's future. It's a terrific opportunity to look at the impact of AI through a more diverse lens than many of its users are used to. So let's get right to the interview with Rajiv Malhotra. Rajiv Malhotra, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to be here. And your book, The Battlegrounds for Artificial Intelligence, that's drawing quite the line in the sand about the role of artificial intelligence. And you go into depth a lot about factors that you equate with colonialism. Can you tell us something about how AI might, and use your words, but what that might have to do with colonialism? So, you know, historically, colonialism was related to the Industrial Revolution, because prior to the Industrial Revolution, Britain was not very advanced. And actually, India had a higher manufacturing economy, even as per British own estimates. Colonialism happened largely because British Industrial Revolution gave them the power, gave them the economic might. They could then turn the colonies into sources of raw material and captive markets for finished goods. So this is how the colonialism and the Industrial Revolution were feeding each other. If there hadn't been an Industrial Revolution, then the colonial enterprise might never have happened or it might not have lasted so long. So there is that relationship that a breakthrough technology creates haves and have-nots, and the new colonial powers could well be United States and China, like they were Britain and France in those days. So this is an interesting analogy. And the colonial enterprise led by the East India Company, you know, the East India Company was a private enterprise like Google, like Facebook, like Twitter, like Amazon, like all these kind of digital giants. You know, East India Company was bigger than the British government. So it was a private enterprise that created a whole colonial empire. So there is that kind of a parallel. But today, it's the ability to take raw data, which is called big data, from a whole lot of places in the world in the guise of giving them free services and in the guise of helping them, which is also true. 
but then using this big data to train algorithms to become smarter and smarter. And as the algorithms get trained using this data, they can become smarter and outsmart human beings in many ways, know more about people than they know about themselves, and then turn around into sophisticated products that are sold back into those markets from where you got the raw material of data. So that's also a kind of a colonialism, maybe more like imperialism. That's why I use this analogy. I see. And you've talked about how Western algorithms are biased towards what you refer to as Western universalism and Chinese algorithms favor Chinese nationalism. And I can kind of unpack that, but could you do that for us and tell us what those implications are for countries outside of that orbit? So, you know, Western universalism is a term I discussed in great detail in a book of mine called Being Different, an Indian challenge to Western universalism. So Western universalism is the result of Western history, European history, uniqueness of Western thought that emerged out of the West's experiences, and which are not the same as experiences that other people have had. Everybody has its own experiences and come up with their own worldview as a result of it, their own social structures, political structures. But in the case of the West, it had the power over the rest of the world and therefore the arrogance to assume that its experiences are universal. So you don't have Africans going around saying this is African universalism. I mean, it's particular to the Africans. And there are some societies that claim that their thoughts are universal, but the power of the West has enabled it to establish this as part of the colonial enterprise. So Western universalism, the spread of the English language, we're speaking in English, the international multifaceted multilateral agencies are controlled and defined and designed by the West have helped spread values, what is a nation, what are human rights, what is the concept of currency, the dollar as a reserve currency. I mean, all of the things that comprise the world order have been designed largely by the West. And so the Western universalism is a sort of premises, premises of the trajectory of history, the premises of what's socially desirable and undesirable, a lot of the values, a lot of the legal systems. All of this comprises a Western lens, which I call Western universalism. Now, China is the most successful contender that has said, hey, listen, hell no, we don't buy that. And we're going to assert our own universalism. We have our own idea of the nature of progress and how a society should evolve. And you may think that we are totalitarian. We think that we need to be for a while in order to improve the lot of a large number of people very rapidly. So we are macro optimizing, not micro optimizing for the short term. And therefore, and we have a right to have our own idea of universalism. So China has created its universalism around the Confucian idea into which they brought in communism and Marxism, and then they brought in the free enterprise. But overall, the Confucian idea of a collective good, overriding the individual good, overriding the individual rights, it comprises their key narrative. So these are two universalisms competing on the world stage right now. We're getting quite deep into this issue, and I want to back out for a minute because I, I think it would help to set some context for our listeners on just what has propelled you into this sphere of debate and moved you to write this book. Can you give us some background on what has brought you to this point? Because writing a book, especially one this thoughtful and this long, takes a lot of commitment. And so what's driving that commitment in you? What experiences led to that? So, you know, I'm a computer scientist by training, and 50 years ago, when I was in grad school, AI was my topic. Of course, it was a very embryonic field in those days. And then I had a successful career in the technology area, both as a corporate executive, then as a consultant in helping AT&T, British Telecom, a whole lot of these people get into the IT field. 
And then I branched off and became my own entrepreneur. I had 20 companies. And then I had some spiritual experiences. So I resigned, got out, exit all that, and started pursuing a different life of giving back, researching, understanding humanity and spirituality and traditions and so on. So I've been into that for the last 26 or 27 years. However, five years ago, I decided to go back into the AI field because I found that AI has gone way beyond what I expected it would during my lifetime. And so I saw issues. I saw issues of new haves and have-nots emerging. I saw that even the discourse on the ethics of AI is being controlled by the Googles and the Microsofts. If you go to organizations that are talking about AI and human rights and AI in society, you'll find that the sponsors and many of the people who are on the board much of the money, it's controlled by these same companies. So there isn't an independent oversight. I saw that, I thought that the, like the global warming and climate change and these kind of issues are now public discourse. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, they were not. A few people were talking about them and they were considered conspiracy theorists and they were considered, you know, that this is out of line. Maybe it's too exaggerated. There's no problem. I think that the issue of AI today is where the issue of climate change was, say, 30 years ago. Uh, but things are moving very fast. There will be problems and nobody is speaking out who has the credentials, the authority, the knowledge to do so, but who's not aligned and not part of one of these camps. And so the people who are going to be, if not victims, that may be too strong a term, but people who are going to be compromised, people who are going to be affected are the bottom 50% of the pyramid in terms of economics and social economic status. A lot of people in poor countries, a lot of people in places like United States who are minorities, women, and so on, they're going to be affected by all this, but they don't have a seat at the table. They don't have the qualifications. Many of the NGOs who speak for humankind are just not qualified to go and raise the kind of issues. Social scientists haven't gotten into this to the same extent like, say, climate change. So I saw a vacuum of leadership, a vacuum of discourse that was needed uh, thoughtfully. And uh, so I decided that I should roll up my sleeves. I've spent the last five years putting this book together. So you talk about India's role in particular, because you're obviously well-informed in that area. And I, and I think a lot of other people would, when thinking about India and computers, would think of, say, Mumbai and Bangalore as being centers of software development, primarily outsourcing from Western companies, that there is a great disparity in wealth, but certainly some great wealth as a result of that level of activity. And so isn't India actually a powerhouse of software development? Why are we not speaking about them in the same context as, say, China with respect to AI development? That's a very important point you've raised. India and China both started out doing labor arbitrage, cheap labor. They could sell for four times the price. India did it with software people. China did it with factory workers. And so, you know, you could hire an Indian. Still, you can hire a software guy for $10,000 a year. And you can market this to the American client for 40000 a year, and a few people in the middle make lots of money. So it created several billionaires that India is very proud of, but they traded on brains. The Indians did not keep the intellectual property. So the analogy I give is, you know, poor villagers are brought to a city like Delhi, and they work on a construction site, and they are paid, and there are some middlemen who make a lot of money on it. But at the end of the day, when the job is over, they don't own even one brick that they have installed. They don't own, the Indian software people don't own a single line of code that they may have installed hundreds of millions of lines of code for Microsoft, but they don't own anything. So they are workers for hire, maybe much better paid than other workers in the country. And a few of them right at the top making a lot of money. But India as a nation and its institutions do not own the intellectual property. 
So this is taking raw material in this case. I earlier gave the example of data as raw material. This is brains as raw material. India has exported a large amount of brains as raw material. It has created a middle class. But at the end of the day, the Western countries are ahead in terms of intellectual property, which they can license back. So China is a little different, much smarter than India in this sense, because China took the money they made from arbitrage of factory workers. At least 50% they reinvested in futuristic technologies. They invested in lithium-ion batteries, which is the basis of electrical cars. They have now got 50% market share of lithium-ion in the world. They invested in solar energy. They are the leaders in solar power, solar energy panels, in drones, in robotics, and in artificial intelligence. So they made some huge bets. They made bets that were going to pay off over 10 years, multi-billion dollar bets. India didn't do that. India was happy renting brains, making money, short-term, that's a short-term kind of a optimization, not a long-term view. And it was private people who made all this happen. The government sort of let it happen because it could collect all this money, taxes and all that, and increase the buying power of a middle class. But they didn't take a long-term strategic view saying, why don't we take these brains and invent the AI technology of the future rather than just renting the brains to the Americans who are building the technology? So the interesting thing is that when it comes to control, the Chinese took control of a whole lot of manufacturing, which is very difficult to bring back to the U.S. And when the Americans would come and say, we want you to manufacture an iPhone, let's say, a Chinese would say, we need to know the design because to manufacture it, we need to know the design. So under the contracts, they would give up the design to the Chinese and Chinese would look at the design, learn it. They're very smart people and they would start doing similar things of their own. The Indians did not say, OK, we're writing your software so we know how the bank works. Uh, we are writing your software for pharmaceuticals. We know how your pharma industry works or how your defense industry works. And so therefore, we are also going to steal those ideas. So Indians were sort of like renting the brain, but not capturing the intellectual property back and making use of it. China is now 10 years ahead of India in artificial intelligence. But several years ago, India was considered the software superpower. The irony is that the software superpower was basically a services model, not an innovation model, not a model based on building actual products that own the intellectual property, but renting brains to the client and let the client keep all the intellectual property. This is where I have a problem with the Indian strategy. China is famed for, at the government level, thinking 100 years into the future. I don't know how accurate that is, but it's certainly the reputation that they have, that they make those kind of strategic choices and that their autocracy enables them to make quite an authoritarian decisions regarding that, which obviously have human rights impacts. Yes. That kind of label does not get attached to India. Yes. Is there something that you would say to the Indian government that they could do in respect of their strategic planning to improve their position? So, you know, you touched a nice point. Chinese can make short-term sacrifices because they don't have to, can pressure the people to make sacrifices short-term so that they can invest for something that will be a big breakthrough 20 years from now. They announced a dozen or more years ago that by 2025, they will be the world-leading AI power. And the U.S. national security thinks that that's about to happen and the U.S. is very concerned about it. Now, that's a long-term payoff and it's not a short-term thing. In a democracy like India, you know, you have to be popular. You cannot tell people, you know, we want you to have pain for 10 years and then your children will be happier. You cannot get away with that. Politicians are known to just give promises and make people feel good 
and let tell people what they want to hear and making them sacrifice, tighten their belts and all that is not something a democracy can do. So there is an inherent advantage that a totalitarian system like China, I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying that this is one of the benefits they get. They sacrifice their rights, their freedom. The government could be terrible and like many dictatorships have been and not give them any benefit. But on the other hand, certain dictator, dictatorial type regimes like Singapore, Singapore also had a very autocratic, although they got elected, but they were very autocratic, kind of a tough, heavy-handed government. A discipline was imposed. But in the process, they delivered a lot. China seems to have done that also on a very large scale. They made the people sacrifice their short-term freedom, but they delivered them some phenomenal results, unprecedented in history. Such a huge gain in standard of living on a, such a large scale never happened before. So the question is, India enjoys, okay, we are free. But the point is that China is gaining the prosperity multiple times the GDP per capita GDP of India and exceedingly powerful in weaponry and military and political might and clout. And, you know, so when you compare the two, 40 years ago, they were similar economies. In fact, in many ways, India was way ahead of China in those days. And India followed its way and China followed its way. The results are that China has come out four times, five times ahead of India in many key technologies. So there are some lessons to be learned about the benefits of centralized planning, long-term planning. People say that you shouldn't have a planned economy, but Singapore has, Taiwan has, South Korea has, China has. So some of these centralized economies have done very well. So India can probably learn a thing or two from that. It seems that we're shaping up to have another battle of the superpowers, just like the Cold War was uh, America and Russia. Now it's looking like an AI war between America and China. And China is currently estimated to be two years behind the United States. So I think they are on target to pull ahead by 2025. And superpower battles are like you know Godzilla and Mothra <laughs> going through Tokyo. They don't notice that there's treading on other people around there. And so that kind of battle has collateral damage to the others that might not just be Chinese incursions in the Northern Territory of India, but what might that mean to be a small player on the AI stage when these superpowers start duking it out. Our listeners can't see, but imagine fists. So, you know, it's already happening. Uh, China has colonized for all practical purposes, large parts of Africa. They have cut a deal in Zimbabwe, where in the guise of giving them surveillance for security, they have put in tens of thousands of surveillance cameras, and these have facial recognition. So they keep tracks of who is going where. And this includes government people, military people, officials, of course, they are giving the government, you know, the benefit of some kind of security, giving them information. But Chinese are collecting all this big data about the movements. And when you know so much about the elite of a country and you're also listening to all their messages and what they post, what they click, you have a complete profile of every single important person. You could also blackmail them. You can also say that I'll favor this guy over that guy, and you have all this knowledge to do so. And so this is how the colonial enterprise was functioning. The British had numerically very, very few Englishmen posted in India, controlling a huge number of people because they had this knowledge and they could play one against the other and they could appropriate and co-opt local people to work for them. So this sort of game, China is perfecting. I would say China is in this experience, they're climbing up the learning curve very rapidly, but they are where the European colonial powers started 200 years ago. 
and Africa is the perfect place where they're doing it. In some ways, they're also colonizing Pakistan because they've given them a huge amount of money. Pakistan never going to be able to give it back. And they want access through Pakistan to the Arabian Sea for various kinds of reasons for trade and military and so on. And in the process, they are controlling the economy. They're controlling some of the leaders in Pakistan. And again, they have a surveillance system in Pakistan for the sake of security of Pakistan, supposedly, but also it keeps them in control. They know what's going on there. So China is doing this quite effectively. Uh, United States has the private sector, these Googles of the world and, you know, all these Facebooks and so on. It's the private sector in the United States doing this internationally and globally. And I'm sure the government has some access to it and knows how to get the benefit of it. Certainly, the U.S. government benefits when U.S. free enterprise goes around the world and does these things. So it's a different, more sophisticated approach. Plus, I'm sure the CIA, well, we know for a fact the CIA, from what Snowden said and so on, the CIA has been doing its own surveillance in this manner. So these two, if you think of them as AI superpowers, are competing not only against each other, but are also competing for colonies. I mean, like France and England were fighting wars against each other, but they were also fighting over colonies. In fact, in India, the British army and French army were having wars with each other in India over territorial control. So this is going to be the state of affairs. I think this AI cyber warfare, this kind of thing has a military implication. A lot of AI gets into military weaponry. Both superpowers are in a race to do that. So a lot of the other countries, they don't have much choice because it takes huge amount of investment to develop these AI systems and to scale, you cannot do it on a tiny scale. So the rest of the countries, I mean, there are some who are second tier powers, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, some of the European countries, Russia, Israel. These are sort of uh, second tier players. Maybe they won't get colonized, but they'll align with one or the other. Perhaps they'll have a status of their own. But what happens to the rest of the world after you take care of these people? You still have two thirds of the world are not going to be in tier one or tier two. So that is a concern of mine. And I wrote this book because I want to create awareness on that kind of uh, neo-colonialism, neo-imperialism, which is, I think, on its way. And you've made some points there about how most of the world has to think about geopolitics and who's around them and consider the security and stability of their borders in a way that people in the United States just don't have to. There's no concern about any kind of problem from Canada or Mexico in terms of threatening the stability of the country. The occasional smuggling or illegal immigration has got nothing to do with that. And that provides a different perspective. I think shifting to a term that's become widespread during the pandemic, we've talked about K-shaped recoveries. And that refers to the fact that if you chart what happened since the pandemic started to the effects economically on different classes, they're quite diverse. Some have gone down and some have gone up, depending on what sector they're in. Just sort of yes. say a crude difference would be that if you're in the entertainment business, like you own a theme park, you're closed, you're not going anywhere. But if your job is say, making video conferencing software, you're doing pretty well, likewise Amazon and so forth. That's demonstrating how disruption can have inequitable effects. So it seems to me you're talking about the, the same dynamic that a disruptive factor has inequitable effects. Now, the sort of colonial aspirations and effects that you've been talking about, of course, existed before AI began its ascendancy. But 
What about AI makes that especially pernicious? Well, you know, the scale of money needed is not available to everybody. The scale of technological sophistication is not available to anybody. And, you know, there are people who are already in many parts of the world not well educated, even by pre-AI standards. So when skilling for AI, learning data sciences and new kinds of software raises the bar of who's going to make it into this new elite club, a lot of people are going to be left behind. So there's an education factor which separates the people. There's a capital availability of capital factor. There's availability of strategy in this. So I would say that the K-shaped is a very good example of this because what's going to happen, I feel, is there will be an exacerbation of inequalities. Even within the same country, you will find that some people will become very rich as a result of AI because they're on the right side, if you will, of this new economy. And others are going to be out of work because their jobs are going to be affected. So as an example, if there is driverless cars and, you know, you're a driver, then, you know, you're out of work. But one could argue that new jobs have been created, but maybe those new jobs are in Silicon Valley. And I'm a driver in uh, Montreal or New Delhi or wherever in Trenton, New Jersey. I don't get the benefit that some people in Silicon Valley making a lot of money out of it. So some industries are going to boom. Others are going to downsize. When uh, iTunes came, the whole music industry shook up. We had a music chain, retail chain called Sam Goodies here in the US. And they had like a couple of tens of thousands of stores. Every downtown had a Sam Goodies. My kids used to go there to buy albums. There's no more Sam Goodies because now you download. The entire phenomenon of uh, record labels is gone. So a new economy has been created, no doubt. And Apple made a lot of money and they hired a lot of people. New jobs are created. And so there are new kinds of employment opportunities. But people who work, who are at the cash register in Sam Goodies are gone. So same you could say about Amazon. They have created a whole new economy. They've hired a, a few hundred thousand people who work there in big warehouses and so on and who drive their trucks. So they have created new jobs. But what about all the small retailers that are out of business? So this disruption is happening at individual levels, at industry levels, in regions of the country, but also between countries between countries where some are going to be colonizers and some are going to be colonized. This, I think, is so serious and so fast compared to the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. This is happening so fast. It's going to create violence. It's going to create social unrest because you'll have large numbers of people who are just not satisfied with the way things are. And the concentration of wealth is unprecedented. If you look at how much wealth in certain countries is owned by the top 1%, that percentage is becoming huge. And what percent of the wealth is owned in the world by the bottom 50%, you know, that's shrinking. Particularly, you look at African women are a huge casualty. I mean, there are World Bank reports on this and the jobs of the future of the result of all this uh, disruption. There is International Labor Organization has produced reports, UNCTAD. I've quoted a lot of this in my book. So certain segments, certain countries, certain strata, certain ethnic groups are really going to be affected. And this is something that requires a conversation on the same level as the conversation on climate change. But we are not having that conversation, and I would like to start that. Well, this is one of the places where we try and have that conversation. And I agree, it should involve many, many times more people than we're currently reaching. But thank you for coming here to start that. And for what it's worth, it's going to be a lot easier for self-driving vehicles to take jobs away from people in Phoenix, Arizona, than it will be in New Delhi for quite a while, just given the average state of the traffic. 
Okay, we're splitting the interview there, so we don't have too long an episode for download size and attention span. It shouldn't, I suppose, come as a surprise that AI is being used, like every other technology, to prop up imperialism and perpetuate a structure of dominance, but that doesn't make it any less disappointing. The thing is, we're playing with fire here. We really don't understand the power of this technology to reshape societal norms and increase the volatility of influence. The big question, I think, is, is tomorrow going to look like today, only just a little bit further down the usual roads of inequity, or are we in for a major disruption, a Six Sigma event or change in power dynamics globally conferred by the scale of AI? If you're a superpower, Actually, if you are, uh, welcome to the show. We'll be putting up a donation link shortly, nothing you would miss. If you're a superpower, then you can't afford to ignore the possibility that technology is going to upset your apple cart. You're going to hang on to your power even more tightly the more uncertain things get. Exhibit A, China. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI... A team of researchers in Germany have come up with a safety system that could warn drivers of autonomous cars that they will have to take control up to seven seconds in advance. The team at the Technical University of Munich, working with BMW, has developed an early warning system for autonomous vehicles that uses AI to learn from about 2,500 real traffic situations. Team lead Professor Eckhard Steinbach, who holds the chair of media technology and is a member of the board of directors at the Munich School of Robotics and Machine Intelligence, says that if used in today's self-driving vehicles, it could offer seven-seconds advance warning against potentially critical situations that the cars cannot handle alone with over 85% accuracy. He goes on, quote, to make vehicles more autonomous, Many existing methods study what the cars now understand about traffic and then try to improve the models used by them. The big advantage of our technology is that we completely ignore what the car thinks. Instead, we limit ourselves to the data based on what actually happens and look for patterns. End quote. Now, this is huge because many drivers will be able to gain situational awareness within seven seconds. If you're sitting in a car that's driving itself and you're reading a book or watching a show like the Uber test driver in Arizona was doing, and the car suddenly beeps at you, you know, like Teslas go beep, 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 then you're suddenly catapulted into this high-stress moment where you've got to look up, figure out where the thread is, what it is, and what to do. And if that turns out to be a pedestrian crossing in front of you with a cyclist behind you, then you're not going to figure out what to do in less than a second. It's going to take you at least five seconds to get situational awareness back. Which is why something that can predict the need for your attention in seven seconds is a big deal, because that could be enough for most people in most situations to avoid an accident. Now, there are obviously all kinds of situations where you couldn't get seven seconds of notice, like if a kid falls out of a tree hanging across the road, although the cars should at least be ready to deal with a pedestrian in the path no matter how they got there. But it looks like there are also enough situations that can be predicted in advance for this development to be worth it, so it could make a major difference to the deployment and approval of self-driving systems. Note that this doesn't mean that we're going to get level 4 or 5 autonomy where the driver is not required either for a particular trip or at all. 
Those breathless predictions of cars roaming the streets without anyone on board, heading to pick up a passenger who doesn't even need to be able to drive, are, unfortunately, pipe dreams for a minimum of five years and probably much longer. But don't underestimate how big a deal this development could be, even though it still means we're going to have to pass driving tests for the foreseeable future. In next week's episode, we'll conclude the interview with Rajiv and talk about how the impact of AI on jobs may be disproportionate in developing countries, how algorithms are perpetuating bias, the impact of privacy violations on disadvantaged groups, and what you can do if you want to make a difference in redressing those inequities. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.